Good morning. You see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. When the Queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon and his relationship to the Lord, she came to test Solomon with hard questions, arriving at Jerusalem with a very great caravan with camels carrying spices, large quantities of gold and precious stones, she came to Solomon and talked with him about all that she had on her mind. Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was too hard for the king to explain to her. When the queen of Sheba saw all the wisdom of Solomon and the palace that he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his officials, the attending servants in their robes, his cupbearers and the burnt offerings that he made at the temple of the Lord, she was overwhelmed. She said to the king, the report I heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom is true, but I did not believe these things until I came and I saw with my own eyes. Indeed, not even half was told me. In wisdom and wealth, You have far exceeded the report I heard. How happy your people must be. How happy your officials who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Praise be to the Lord your God, who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel. Because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them, because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, His wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely, as David his father had done. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Shemosh, 
the detestable God of Moab, and for Moloch, the detestable God of the Ammonites. He did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude, and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe for the sake of David my servant and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. lost the clicker just a few tech issues here no one's got a clicker who should have it all right i might just signal to anna when it's oh no there it is thanks rob it's always some sort of tech issue that i seem to bring on myself every time i get up here thanks for that oh, I'll, I'll work it out eventually thanks well good morning everyone thank you joe my name is mark if we haven't met it's great to be with you all this morning. Now, there's a podcast that's been doing the rounds the, the last couple of years that you might have come across called um, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Would you have to just pop this into the laptop? That'll, that'll make it work much better. Beautiful. Hold that thought. The, the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Um, some of us have probably, probably listened to it. It um, basically traces the journey of a megachurch in America, which went from having tens of thousands of members in, in campuses all around the, the country to collapsing basically overnight in a, a very damaging and highly controversial manner. And the podcast basically asks the question, what went wrong with this seemingly thriving church? Uh, what were the leadership issues that caused this collapse to happen? And similarly, we, we might ask, what went wrong with the kingdom of Israel under Solomon? And the passage we're looking at this morning, so we're looking at 1 Kings 9 through to 12, and, and it begins with things going about as well for Israel as you can imagine. Um, they're thriving under a wise king, Solomon, who God has appointed. Uh, we saw last week that they've built God's temple, and God has filled the temple with his glory. He's promised to be with them always if they continue to obey him. Solomon and Israel are... They're the envy of the world around them. Solomon is rich beyond measure. People are coming from all directions to hear Solomon's wisdom, to to see his wealth, to see the prosperity of Israel under him. Uh, One of these visitors who we we heard in the reading there was the Queen of Sheba. Uh, Now, she's clearly uh, quite a wealthy and powerful ruler herself based on all the people that she, she brings with her. 
on a visit. Um, she comes to Israel. She, she sees the, the wealth and the prosperity of the nation. She, she fires all of her questions at Solomon. Solomon probably feels like Siri answering all the, the questions that she asks him. And, and she's overwhelmed. She just can't believe what she's seeing and hearing. And she simply praises God for how he has blessed the people. She says, praise be to the Lord your God who has delighted in you, Solomon, and placed you on the throne of Israel. Because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. It's a, it's a real high point of the life of Israel. And yet two chapters and just a few short years later, the wheels are all falling off. The kingdom has split into two. There's civil war and the rebel king who's taken over has invented his own religion and he's convinced people to turn away from God and worship idols. Um, so what happened? How did things go so badly wrong when they were looking so good? Well, the answer to that question has a huge bearing on our lives even today. And the lesson that we learn from Israel's decline under King Solomon is that sin has the power to turn first our hearts and then our whole lives away from God and to cause great destruction in doing so. And yet we also see that God remains gracious in spite of all of this. The events of 1 Kings 9 to 12 are the story of a divided heart, a divided kingdom, and a gracious God. And we're going to begin with a divided heart, which is what begins Israel's downfall. Um, there have been a few hints in the first 10 chapters of 1 Kings that perhaps Solomon's faithfulness to God isn't perfect. Um, for example, he, he does a few little things that just go against uh, what God has told his people already in the Bible to do. So he accumulates huge amounts of gold, huge amounts of chariots and horses, which, which kings weren't supposed to do. Um, but the real turning point comes in the start of chapter 11 there, where we, everything's going really well up to this point. And then we read that King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women. Uh, 700, to be exact, that's, that's how many wives he had, plus 300 concubines as well, just in case all the wives were busy one night, went out and watched Frozen together or, or something. Um, but it, it, it's ridiculously excessive, isn't it? 700 wives. Um, the biggest issue, though, is that his wives were from nations where God had commanded his people not to marry with. Um, not because God is racist, uh, not because God is against inter interracial marriage, not because God sets rules just for the sake of it, but because he knew that these marriages were going to lead to the hearts of his people getting turned away from him. And in fact, for that exact same reason, God commanded that the king must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. And that's exactly what happens. We read that as Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. Solomon worships other gods. He Not just that, but he sets up altars for them. And some of these gods are gods from other nations um, whose people would sacrifice children to them. So it's pretty, it's pretty nasty stuff here. Solomon does evil in the eyes of the Lord, we're told. And notice as well, it's, it's a slow 
drift that Solomon has. It's, it's not the impulsive decisions of a young man here. We read that this is as Solomon grew old. Uh, my guess is that a young King Solomon would have been horrified to look at where he ended up as an old man. Small compromises, though, led to a huge deviation down the track. It's a bit like when you, when you go swimming at the, at the beach. You, you go swimming, you've been in the water for an hour or so, and you, you sort of look to the, the beach where your, your towel is, and you realise you've drifted about 100 metres along the beach just without even recognising it because of the tide. Small compromises lead to big deviations. Now, thinking about the, this idea of sin, and I suspect the average person in Australia, to, when, they, when they think about sin, would think about it as it's breaking some sort of rule that God's set. It's like if I, if I murder someone, that's a sin. If I, if I steal, that's a sin. And God's kind of like the big policeman in the sky who watches over it all. Um, there are a couple of ways here that, that Solomon's drift helps us to, to understand sin in a, in a manner that's a little bit deeper than that. Um, so firstly, we see that sin is more than just a, a word or an action. It begins in our hearts. It begins inside us. God wants our hearts to be devoted to him. In fact, he, he told his people years earlier, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. But Solomon wasn't fully devoted to God, was he? He didn't love God with all his heart and his soul and his strength. And as his love for God grew cooler and his heart turned towards other gods, well, it was only a matter of time before his whole life followed in that direction. Um, you know, whenever I've read about King Solomon, even you know, back in, back in um, Sunday school, even as a kid, I've always asked myself the same question about him. And maybe it's a question that you've asked as well. I've wondered, how did the wisest man who ever lived do such stupid things? How did he let it happen? If he, if he had all this supernatural wisdom from God, how did things end up the way they did? And the answer is simply the power of sin. The power of sin to, to fixate our hearts on something that draws us away from God. And the, the ironic thing is that Solomon knew this himself. So in the, in the book of Proverbs, Solomon himself had written, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Great advice. He, he should have listened to it. Um, have a look at where he ends up. The, the same Solomon who, who we saw in last week's passage pleading with God to, to forgive his people when they repent of their sins doesn't even repent when God confronts him with his own sin. Solomon's heart has been hardened by the deceitfulness of sin that we read about in our Hebrews New Testament passage. Each compromise just makes the next one that little bit easier. Um, so we've seen that sin is a matter of the heart. It's something that starts on the inside and, and works its way out. Um, what we also see is the deeply relational nature of sin. Uh, we read, the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. See, God, God has personally appeared to Solomon, not just once, once would have been enough, but he's, he's done it twice. 
Um, he's made Solomon king. He's blessed him with wealth, with wisdom, with, with prosperity, with everything that Solomon could possibly want. God has shown himself utterly worthy of every cubic millimeter of Solomon's heart. And yet Solomon has been unfaithful. He's forgotten what God has done for him. That's a bit of an illustration. You, you can imagine Solomon's first wife feeling, you know, slightly hurt, slightly inadequate when Solomon proceeded to marry another 699 women afterwards. It's kind of the ultimate insult, really, isn't it? I, um, Alicia and I, my wife, we um, celebrated our anniversary last night. Imagine if I got up and sort of made her her morning coffee and then said, look, really excited it's our anniversary. But um, I don't know if you remember, but, you know, Elise, wife number 384, it's actually my anniversary with her as well. So I'll be, we'll be heading out to dinner tonight. And um, it's actually, you know, Anita, she's wife number 512. It's her birthday today as well. So we're, we're doing lunch together. So if you could just fix up something for lunch and um, just look after the kids while we're out for dinner tonight, that'd be great. And um, one of my concubines' wives' cats died as well, so I have to kind of go have a coffee with her. You, you get the picture. I don't have to waffle on about this. But in the, in the same way, when we, when we love things that erode our heart's devotion toward God, we're, we're committing spiritual adultery. We're, we're depriving God of love and worship that he alone is worthy of. Uh, so sin begins in our hearts, and it's deeply relational as well, because God created us to, to love him with our whole hearts. Now, I want to make a couple of um, quick application points here. I'll draw a bit more together at the end, but two quick ones here. Uh, the first one is uh, for younger people in particular who are thinking about who you would want to date or marry. Um, as Solomon found out, marrying someone puts them in a position of influence in your life. Um, anyone who can be bothered scrolling through my old Facebook photos uh, and seeing how badly I used to dress before Alicia came onto the scene um, will attest to that. Um, so the question to ask is, am I, am I marrying or am I wanting to marry someone who loves God? Someone who's going to encourage me in my walk with God. Now, this is absolutely not a dig at um, married couples who have different beliefs. Um, so the book of 1 Peter in the New Testament, for example, in chapter 3, has words of great encouragement for people who are in that position and, and encouragement that, that God can and will work powerfully through those marriages. Um, but what I'm wanting to do is to, to make sure that we are guarding our hearts in the decisions that we make. Because the person, the person that I marry is going to have a profound influence on my spiritual life. The only question is how. Uh, so that's the first application. The second one here is especially for, for older believers. Uh, maybe you've been a, a Christian for 40, 50, 60 years. Uh, you've served God well in that time. You've, um, you've led community groups. You've served at church. You've gone on mission trips, all, all those kind of things. Don't allow yourself to get complacent. Solomon did, did lots of great things for God in his young years. He, he built a temple. He, he ruled a whole country. And then he fell away in his old age. So be vigilant. We're in a spiritual war every single day. The devil will never stop trying to divide your heart and to lead you away from God. 
Uh, so be vigilant. In fact, that really goes for all of us, regardless of how long we've been following Jesus for. Solomon's divided heart ultimately leads to a divided kingdom. Uh, now, all through the book of 1 Kings, this, this has been the message. God has been saying, particularly to Solomon, if you obey me, if you keep my commandments, this kingdom will endure. There's always going to be a king on the throne. But if you turn away from me, I'll reject you as well. And now the downhill slide is well and truly beginning. Uh, God first raises up a couple of foreign enemies against Solomon. Um, so this shatters the, the peace and prosperity that Israel were enjoying for so long. And then he chooses an Israelite named Jeroboam. So Jeroboam, remember that name. Um, Jeroboam is one of Solomon's officials and God sends a prophet to tell him, you're going to be king after Solomon. Uh, eventually Solomon dies. His son Rehoboam becomes king. I realize it's confusing having rhyming names. So Rehoboam is Solomon's son. Jeroboam is the, the other one. Uh, Rehoboam becomes king. But, but Rehoboam makes a whole lot of foolish decisions early on, trying to assert his dominance. He um, manages to completely alienate the people. Uh, there's, a, there's a rebellion. Ten of the 12 tribes of Israel rebel against Solomon's son, and they make Jeroboam their king, just as God had promised. Uh, so Solomon's son, Rehoboam, is left with just two tribes, and Jeroboam, the other king, has, has ten tribes. And the chapter ends with Jeroboam, the, the rebel king, leading Israel into pagan worship. And not just that, but the two kingdoms at war against each other. It's a disaster, an absolute disaster. And yet perhaps it was inevitable all along. A kingdom falling apart when human hearts are divided from their love for God kind of takes us right back to the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? It's a, it, it shows us that if living in a right relationship with God and with one another is up to us, then it's going to fall apart. Because even the wisest person to ever live couldn't safeguard his heart against sin. He couldn't stop his heart being fixated on things that drew his attention and his affection away from God. And he couldn't stop the consequences, the far-reaching consequences of his heart's rejection of God. And on our own, neither can we. I mean, who can honestly say that things like money, career progression and being liked by other people, that, that these things have never caused us to take our eyes off God? Um, which makes this all seem like bad news, except for the graciousness of God that we see here. See, even as God promises that he's going to tear the kingdom away from Solomon, um, he tells him this. He says, Nevertheless, for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him but will give him one tribe for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. So it's not going to happen during Solomon's lifetime, and it's not going to be the whole kingdom. Why? Well, for the sake of a faithful king, Solomon's father, David. Notice as well, God gives Solomon time to repent. He, he sends enemies 
against Solomon, to, to try and shake him back into, into turning him back to God. But Solomon's heart has wandered far away. God even makes the same gracious promises to, to Jeroboam as well. He says to Jeroboam, if you do what is right in my eyes, I'm making the same promise to you that I did to Solomon. I'll, I'll be with you and I'll be with your descendants and they'll rule forever. But Jeroboam rejects, Solomon, rejects God right from the start. We're seeing here that God's graciousness shines in the darkness of human sin, even if neither Solomon nor Jeroboam can recognize it. And it still does today. God is gracious to us for the sake of his faithful king. But not King David, another king. A king who appeared centuries later. A king who died to take our sin on himself. To face the judgment that, that we deserve for turning away from God in our hearts. A king who rose again. A king who is in heaven right now, praying for us, pleading on our behalf. If God was to treat each one of us, as we deserve, in accordance to, to how we've treated him, um, it would be to reject us, to disown us. But for Jesus' sake, if we accept our king's death in our place, and if we choose to live for him, God graciously welcomes us as his children. He has a place prepared for us. He gives us his spirit to change our hearts and make us more like Jesus from the inside out. If you're here this morning, just, just checking church out, working out what it's all about, um, this is right at the heart of what we believe and what we come together every week to celebrate, that we can only be right with God because Jesus died in our place. See, if God wasn't gracious, we would have no hope at all. But until Jesus returns again to make things right, sin is always going to be a reality in this lifetime. Our hearts are going to be tempted to, to value things above God. Probably not the, the ancient foreign gods that, that Solomon worshipped, but, but the gods of money, popularity, success, and so much more. The only way to, to counter our hearts being divided by sin is, is to fix our eyes on the graciousness of God. And the beauty of Jesus. Trying to, to do better at loving God isn't going to do it. That's, that's not going to help us. We need to, to let our hearts be filled with the reality and the truth of the gospel and what it means for us. I want to finish by leaving us with a couple of questions to, to think about personally as we go away from here today. So applying this passage, not just to our lives on the outside, but, but to our hearts on the inside. And the first question to ask is, where am I compromising? Where am I compromising? What do I do that I know, I know it goes against God, and I know it goes against the way that, that God wants me to live, but it seems so trivial. Like, why does it matter if I just do this little thing? Or perhaps I know that I can get away with it. This is, this is something that I can keep to my private life and no one else has to know about it. 
Or perhaps it's something that's socially acceptable, even, even in church circles. It's something that I know it's wrong, but, but people don't seem to mind me doing it. Sin is deceitful. It, it draws us in. Every compromise that we make makes the next one easier until we end up somewhere that we would never have imagined to start with. See, Solomon, he, he began by disobeying God's word in what would have seemed like really trivial, really insignificant ways. You know, what's, what's the harm of having a, a few extra chariots or a few extra wives? What harm could that do? But look where it ended up. Where am I compromising? And the second question, if the, if the devil was trying to turn my heart away from God, which I'm sorry to say he is, where would he target? Where would he target me? How would he try to make God seem small in my heart? What lies about God would he want to make me believe? And perhaps that God is unkind. Perhaps that, that God expects too much of me. And perhaps that I'll be happier without God. Or what might the devil want to magnify in my heart so that it overshadows God? Would he try to, to fix my heart on the, the pursuit of good grades, of a, a rich lifestyle, good health? What bait would he use to, to try and lead me away from God one little step at a time? It's a confronting question, but it's one that's worth asking so that we can guard our hearts. We've seen from Solomon how a divided heart led to a divided kingdom, showing the destructive power of sin to, to turn first our hearts and then our whole lives away from God. And yet what we've also seen is that nothing can spoil the purposes of our gracious God for the sake of his faithful king. So let's fix our eyes and our hearts on him. Let me pray. Our loving and gracious God, we pray that you would give us strength and wisdom to guard our hearts carefully, to treasure you above all else. We praise you for our glorious King Jesus and his death in our place. And we long for that day when our hearts will be perfectly fixed on you alone as we see you face to face. Amen.